Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey everyone, it's Todd. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast. Thanks for joining us. The weather's getting nicer. It's mid-May. For all of you who've been out enjoying turkey hunting and foraging for mushrooms and all the things that we enjoy through the spring, hope you're staying safe and having a good time. It's fishing season, and we are here to talk about fly fishing with New York author Mark Usick this week on the Outdoor Feast podcast. Mark is a conservationist. He writes books. He, he's written the book Reflections of a Fly Rod. He's written the book Carp or Jerks. And he's been a longtime blogger on the J.P. Ross Fly Rod website uh, on a blog called Streamer Junkie. And if you haven't read Mark's blogs, they're great. It's just as much about life as it is about fishing. And so we're talking fly fishing this week. As the COVID situation is kind of revealing, a lot of people are expressing a renewed interest in fishing. License sales are up in a lot of states. Uh, the weather's getting better. Fishing season's settling in. The Minnesota opener was recent. Uh, New York fishing season's coming into full swing. And so Mark is on the podcast talking about some tips for getting started with fly fishing. He's going to offer three or four tips for getting started. He's going to talk about who the mentors were in his journey. He's going to talk about his books and just kind of what the impetus was and what the motivation and the inspiration, a little bit about the flavor of those books. And then we're going to talk about brook trout conservation as well in the Adirondacks. So for those of you outside the Northeast, the Adirondack Park, 6 million acres, nearly 3,000 lakes, streams, and ponds. And there's an incredible brook trout fishery here. And there's groups like Trout Power out of central New York that are at the forefront of citizen science research when it comes to brook trout. And so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Get out there if you can. Enjoy the woods and water. Stay safe. Be responsible. Stay healthy. Let us know how you're making out and uh, keep us posted. And thanks for listening as always. Here we go. Mark Usick, Reflections of a Fly Rod. Mark, welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, let's start out with a question, and then we can talk a little bit about your your books and your writing and fly angling, and there's just so much to talk about here. I'm going to start you out with a question, and I'm going to say, in your opinion, Mark, why do you think fly fishing right now is such a popular gateway for people that are getting into the outdoors, women and men? Um, it's really like I've been reading some articles about it recently, and it's been on social, and it's like it's a really popular gateway um, in your opinion, what do you think is driving that? I think social media is driving it. I really do. And I think it's because of the visual of fly fishing. Let's just picture somebody on social media casting a baitcaster or a spinning rod or whatever. Uh, it's somebody holding a fishing pole. Then picture somebody casting a fly rod on the social media. And you got these big graceful loops in the air. And it just looks cool. I honestly, I think what's really pushing it, I think it's the visual thing. Fly fishing just looks cool. And everything at this point is on social media and social media is about looking cool. 
Yeah, I think you're onto something there, Mark. So let's start out. Um, you know, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking about backcountry fishing. I'd like to also talk a little bit about your perspectives on how people can get started and how you got started and everything. And we can talk a little bit about conservation and, and your efforts with Trout Power and J.P. Ross and all the stuff you're doing there. You know, a couple of years ago, you and I met at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous in the Catskills. And I bought your book, Reflections of a Fly Rod. I just want to start with a, just a quick reading of the intro, and then you can talk about the book and what inspired you to do all this, if you don't mind. So um, I love the intro. It says, it's only nine feet of graphite and a handful of cork. It's such a simple thing, not a complicated device by any means, practically a stick in the simplest of descriptions, yet to really immerse myself into the backstory of how this all came about, of what it does for my mind, of the things I feel when I stand at the water, and of the things I don't feel because I stand at the water, it stirs up more questions and answers that lead still to more questions and answers. So I, I may start to see that if there's really no meaning to life, if by some chance we weren't put on this planet to do something specific, then the odds of falling into something that feels like just that, that it's what you're meant to do, uh, they must be so small and remote in such a vast time and place, seems proof enough that there's a master plan for my life somewhere. That's That's so cool. You know, and the book just follows that whole trajectory from there. Like, I love the fact that you're like not only a great fly angler writer, but a philosopher about stuff. So talk a little bit about how you got started with all this and your book and, and how, how you got started with fly fishing. Yeah, sure. Before I do that, I just want to say that I think from now on, if I do book signings and I'm going to read something, I'm going to take you along because you read my stuff way better than I do. <laughs> I'll be your roadie, okay? I'll even uh, I'll even pack your van, okay? <laughs> so, I always had a very slight, small interest in writing, even when I was in high school. And I was a high school flunky, leather jacket, long hair, but there was always something that I thought was cool about writing, but I never did anything with it. And when I got older, I got into hot rods and stuff, and I was into that whole culture. And I actually tried writing a few times about it. I tried writing, starting a fiction book, and even writing some like how-to stuff, tips and tricks on fabricating. And it never went anywhere. So it didn't, as much as I really loved that stuff at the time, it didn't do anything for me writing for it. So fast forward years later, I'm not into that stuff anymore. I burn out on it and I'm working on the road, a kind of a crazy job. I was climbing cell phone towers for a living. And in that job, you're on the road at least five days a week, if not more different hotels every night. And it was, I was 35 or 36 when I started that job working with a bunch of early 20 year olds. And all they want to do after that job's full of ego. That's, that's, that's what their job is. Ego, testosterone, and adrenaline. And a bunch of young kids, they were kids. They were 10 years younger than me, at least. <laughs> uh, all they want to do after a day, hundreds of feet in the air, puffing up your chest and getting a job done was drink at the hotel bars at night. And I was past that point in my life. I didn't want to try to keep up with them, and I couldn't afford it anyways. So I started finding places mostly all across New York state where we worked to fish after the workday was done while they went to the bar and that I was spin fishing. I didn't fly fish at the time. And maybe it's an age thing. Maybe it was part of the challenge 
I always fished with a ultralight rod and I was, I tied my own little, uh, ultralight jigs and stuff. And I thought it would be cool just to have something to do to learn to tie flies. And I said, well, if I'm going to learn to tie flies then I ought to be fly fishing and all of it at the same time came into play because for some reason up until that point, I just, I didn't know anything about fly fishing. I thought that it was just, you know, some goofy old man thing that people did. And it clicked in my head, man, it looks really cool. It was that visual thing I was talking about earlier. You know, the line in the air and everything. I picked up a couple magazines and it took off fast for like a year. I would go out with the spinning rod and the fly rod. I'd get frustrated with the fly rod. I could cast it. I learned to cast pretty quick. I did. I, I understood the mechanics of it. But once the fly was on the water, I didn't know what to do with it. And a lot of people will tell me, oh, I'd never admit that. Why would you even say that? But I think it took me almost six months before I caught my first fish on a dry fly. It really took me that long. Uh, I'd, I'd have, you know, all the last second refusals, fish coming up. And you'd set the hook thinking the fish took it. And I was either ripping the fly away, you know, two seconds before the fish ever touched it or the fish just weren't taking it. And I didn't know any better. Um, so I would go out with a spinning rod and a fly rod. I carried a whole bag of fishing stuff during the week in the work truck. And when I would get frustrated with the fly fishing, I'd set the fly rod down and I'd go back to the spinning rod and I'd catch fish, but I wasn't catching any fish and I was getting really frustrated with it, but there was something about it that was just so cool that I actually stuck with it. And I will be the first person to admit that I've done all kinds of different stuff, had all these different interests in life. And fly fishing was the one thing that was, it seemed in the beginning pretty hard to me. And I stuck with it because something told me it was going to be worth it. I just connected to it somehow. And I think it was not so much the fish. It was the casting portion of it. There's something when you're standing out in a river, doesn't have to be a river. It could be a lake or a pond, but when you're standing out in the water, and you're sending those loops back and forth. I mean, the loop looks graceful enough and all, but it's something about being in tune with the way the rod is flexing. The line is rolling out behind you, in front of you. You're feeling it all. You don't even need to see it. You can just feel what's going on. Everything just comes out perfect. The line lands right. It, everything is just, everything is there. Maybe you catch a fish at the end of the cast, and maybe you don't, and it really doesn't matter to me. That, that fish, if it happens, is a bonus. And that all happened while I was working on the road. And that's what brought on the writing. Come wintertime, was, I wasn't fishing anymore. I didn't have any of the cold weather gear for being out in the river. I had cold weather gear for being 300 feet up in the air. Carhartts and ski masks and goggles and all that stuff. I didn't have anything for fishing in the winter. So I was stuck in the hotel room all winter. And I was tying flies and jigs. But... A lot of people were asking me about that job. It's just, it's just one of those jobs when they find out what you do for a living. I don't do it anymore, but when they did, they, you know, they, oh, that's got to be crazy. They start asking all these questions and something just like the trying to come up with something new, starting the fly fishing part. I don't know what really brought it on, but something made me think, you know, maybe I'd want to write about that job. And I tried putting up a blog. It probably exists someplace. I, I didn't know enough about how to get traffic on it, how to let people know I had to blog. I think I had five or six people following it, but I would write about the workday and then the fishing afterwards. 
And I came to find that I enjoyed writing about the fishing more than the workday. I had even started my first book and it was a book about that job. And I think I've still got seven chapters of it that I started that are all done. I started it seven chapters. I never finished it because I realized I enjoyed writing about what I was getting out of the fishing more than the job itself. So it kind of all shifted from there. I wanted a, a fly rod from my buddy, Jordan, JP Ross fly rods. So I called him one day in the fall and I said, I want a seven weight for streamers for bass and stuff in the springtime. So we got to talk about what it is I really need, what you're going to build me and how much it's going to cost. And then in the spring, when it's done, we'll be all set. And he told me that he had actually been reading my blog posts and said, I'll build you that rod if you will move your blog onto my website. And it took off. I, I, I don't know how many I have on there now. I slowed down over the past year and a half, but for a good two years, at least I put up a new story every week. So there's a lot of them on there. Um, and it just took off from there. The blog turned into a, into a book. Um, I figured if I could do the blog, I started, then why couldn't I write a book? And that was all because I was, I think I read two of John Garrick's books and a couple of others, but there was something that connected with me with John's writing. And I said, you know, he listening to him is like, or reading his stuff is like, it's like sitting down and talking with somebody about fishing over a couple of beers. It wasn't super artsy. It got the job done. It wasn't fancy and it was really relatable. And I thought I'd try my hand at it. Um, I don't know if I really copied his style, but it was definitely my motivation. And I figured if I could have all these blog posts, stories once a week, there was no reason I couldn't put it in a book. And that's exactly how the first book came about. You know, I really, what I like about your writing is that I, I like the, like, your philosophical and lifestyle approach to it, Mark. So like when I'm reading the chapters in your book or I'm reading like the blog, I've seen your blog on the, on the JP Ross website. And I think it's a very approachable piece for people. Like people that are interested in fly fishing can come to it. And like your writing, it's not just about the fly fishing. It's not technical. It's about life, you know, and it's about what it, what it means to you and kind of like the ups and downs and so forth. And it's, it's just great. I just love that, that whole approach. Um, so for people getting started, I think that they can relate to you so much through that, you know, and, and that's what I think makes your, your writing so special in my opinion and why I'm so excited to talk to you about it. What do you think uh, for people like just interested in fly fishing? We'll get back to your book. I'm going to ask you a question for advice for uh, anybody, a woman or a man, um, an adult, somebody that's like interested in getting started with fly fishing. What's your advice as far as like, what do you think are the key, maybe three things that they need to consider on how to get started and what kind of, what kind of direction would you point them in? Okay. The first direction would be gear. You don't want to go and buy the cheapest outfit you can buy because you're going to be disappointed, but you're not going to know why you're disappointed. But you also don't need to spend, you you don't need to go out and spend $500 on a fly rod to start out. A lot of people, a lot of people I hear telling other people, oh, well, 
you know, start out with a cheap one. And then if you like it, buy a more expensive one. When I say find some gear that's kind of middle of the road, you can buy kits that come with a reel and a rod and a line all in a box or, you know, 150 to 200 bucks. And that's a rod that is actually going to cast well, even though you've never cast before. The rod is all about feeling what it's doing. And those really cheap rods that you get at like Walmart that comes with a rod reel on the line for like 40 bucks. Somebody who really knows how to fly fish, they're going to be able to cast them. But somebody who's just started has never done it before. They're going to be all kinds of disappointed and they're going to think they're a horrible caster. And maybe they just haven't had the right rod in their hand yet so that they know what they're actually looking to feel out of it. So the first, so my first tip would be, yeah, just get a decent middle of the road combo set from somebody. You don't have to go crazy with it. My second tip piece of advice would be learning to cast. Everybody's like, Oh, can you teach me to cast? Teach me to cast. Well, I could try, but I'm not a good teacher. My go-to is always go to YouTube. YouTube is like the best resource for you don't have to leave your house to find a teacher. And there are some really, really good videos on YouTube that keep it super simple. Orvis has some awesome beginner casting videos. It doesn't have to be difficult. If you can, if you can learn to lay a line out 30 feet, if you can learn to lay a line out 20 feet, it's time to hit the water. You don't have to cast 100 feet. And depending on what you're fishing, you might not have to cast 30 feet. And that's, I mean, 30 feet is sometimes a really long cast. You don't have to be this awesome caster to get out and start fishing. That's going to come with the experience of being on the water. Once you can lay a decent 25 foot cast out in your front yard you're happy with it it's not it's not looking like a knotted shoelace in the air you know it's it's semi graceful and smooth good enough go hit the water and that's where the experience is really going to start coming in and from that point that goes into my third tip which is going to be patience it doesn't happen overnight you're either going to be a pretty decent caster right off the bat or you're going to struggle with it because you've got to learn what it is the rod that's in your hand wants. You've got to understand that the rod the rod flexes, which loads up the energy, and you've got to you've got to understand that that line is going to roll out and load up the rod, and that you're going to shoot the line in the opposite direction at just the right time. This is stuff that the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. It is not going to be the easiest thing in the beginning. For some people, it is, but for most people just patience. I had the casting down fairly decent, but I'm not kidding you. It, it took me probably close to six months to catch my first fish on a dry fly because I really wasn't understanding what it was I was doing after I made the cast. And that first fish on a dry fly was a probably a four inch fall fish. It was a giant minnow and it felt so awesome <laughs> to finally have that little thing on there. Not because of what the fish was, but because, holy crap, I I got all the steps down. I got the formula down and I made it work once. And it got so easy after that, after that first fish. But it, it was, it was for me, it was a long time coming for it. It really was. Yeah, that's such a great story. I think that advice is so solid. 
there, there and there are some great resources on YouTube and I've looked I've looked at a lot of Orvis videos and they are fantastic like from the casting standpoint and like mending you know mending yep. line and like reading and that's the you know you talk about the struggles with knowing what to do once that line's on the water I it took me a long time as well like just reading the reading the river and like positioning and knowing where to cast and how to use the current and stuff like that it's it's really tough the experience being out there you're only going to learn so much off of youtube you got to get out there I, I love your practical advice about just getting out there and doing it taking taking one step at a time I, I kind of liken it like my struggle with it is the difference between eating with a fork and with chopsticks so like you know like with my fork it's like is like parallel to like my spinning rod and then my chopsticks are like parallel to my fly angling abilities but if you keep doing it and you keep practicing it gets easier over time so uh, like you talked about john garlic as being like a um, a mentor for you or somebody that you look up to for writing through your fishing journey here mark have you had people like mentors that you've looked up to that have helped you with your fishing journey, helped you through struggles, anything like that? Big time. I, I'd almost want to say anybody I go out with, honestly, even even someone who doesn't really know what they're doing and is asking me to help them figure out what's wrong with the cast. And I end up learning something from watching them. But like uh, my buddy JP is one of the best casters I've ever known and I'll go out with him and I'll think I'm doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden something changes in my cast and I have no idea what, and I'm throwing horrible tailing loops. And in my mind, nothing has changed. I'm doing exactly the same thing that I did the thousand casts before. And why all of a sudden now am I getting wind knots and horrible, horrible landings and stuff and he'll look at me and he'll be like, well, you're doing this. And I'll be like, no, I'm not. And he says, cast again. And he'll video me. And then he'll go, all right, now take a look at this. And I'll be like, he's right. He's one of those people that can really pick out. He can see it because he understands it so well. And then there's a couple other people that I've met since doing this. Uh, I met a guy in Buffalo. His name is Justin Damood. And I actually caught my first steelhead with him out there. And he was just really knowledgeable. He, he taught me how to check nymph, which is there's really no casting involved with the fly rod. It's you're pretty much dredging the bottom, um, putting it right in their face. But he understood it so well that while he was trying to explain to me what I was doing wrong in the first hole, he ended up hooking two fish and then feeling horrible about it. And I thought it was awesome. I'm like, I don't care if I caught him or you caught him. That was so cool to see. But he was just such a good teacher. And he was willing. This was somebody that was willing to. Here's this guy from the other side of the state. Just come fish with me, you know, for heaven. And ended up teaching me a ton of stuff. It's people, people like that. And then I met another guy last December. Uh, his name is J.C. Clark. And he's probably the best trout fisherman that I know. And he taught me more by me just watching him than anything else. The people who really know their stuff, they don't have to talk. They don't have to tell you anything. I mean, maybe you'll ask him a question. Why'd you do this? And why do you have it rigged this way? But other than that, 
such a good fisherman that you could just watch him. It was it was it was almost frustrating to me. We did the salmon river two days in a row. I believe it was the middle of December. And I hooked into one fish and managed to keep it on for about oh six or seven seconds. He he landed two, one on the first day and one on the second day. But watching him, I felt like a better angler at the end of the two days without even catching a fish just because I saw somebody understand it like they've been doing it since they were born. He had such an understanding of it that it actually gave me an understanding of it. You meet some cool people doing this. Let me tell you. When you're talking about the fish on the Salmon River, were they steelhead at that time of year, still in the river, winter steelhead? Actually, the one that I hooked into, it rolled on top enough for me to get a good look at it, and I think it was a big lake run brown. But the other Oh, two no were, kidding. Yeah. yeah. Hey, that's cool. So, hey, I want to, you know, another, uh, we can roll in. I want to talk a little bit about your book, um, Carp or Jerks, too, like your second book, right, or, or third book or whatever it is. But like, I, I love reading, I'm going to read another passage here, then we can talk about carp, because I think it's it's so cool. You, you have in Reflections of a Fly Rod, the carp incident chapter, and it says there's two fish that call my local waters home that I'd love to scratch off my list of fish caught on the fly that keep evading me. Let's cut right to the point. Carp and Northern Pike have been making me feel like the village idiot for a couple of years now. Before you start making fun of me, it's not like I'm, I've been going out day after day for years chasing nothing but carp or pike and coming up empty-handed. It's not like that at all. I spend a lot of time exploring Adirondack streams for brookies and bumming around creeks for smallmouths. It's more like when I'm out and there's carp or pike present and I give them a shot, well, that's when it all falls apart. That's when I hear the fish laughing. I just love that. I love your just like your practical approach to things and you're just like honest writing. It's great. So talk a little bit about carp and talk about carp or jerks and like what was that process like writing that book compared to like the first book that you wrote on Reflections of the Fly Rod? Well, Reflections of the Fly Rod, the first book, was really because of all my blog stories. I just wanted to put a bunch of short stories together really short, easy to read stories and not tell one long story through the book, but just have a, have a book that you could open it up to any page. And most of the stories are between two and four pages long. That's it. They're nice and short. They're easy. And I accomplished that with reflections of a fly rod. That's because I didn't have any big expectations. That's all I wanted to do. What I think I had, I think I have what, like 61 stories in that book because they're so short. They're easy to read. And everybody says, oh, they're really, really cool because they're so easy to read. I could pick it up and not pick it up for another month. And it's not like I forgot anything because there was nothing to forget. They don't, they're just stories. So Carp are Jerks, I actually had started the day that I published, that I released Reflections of a Fly Rod. I already had, I think, two stories done for Carp or Jerks. I was going to roll right into it. I was I was feeling the writing so much. I was just continuing on. While the cover was being done for Reflections of a Fly Rod, I was working on Carper Jerks. And I hadn't titled it yet, but I knew I was going to call it Carper Jerks because of the carp. I believe it was the carp incident story, Reflections of a Fly Rod. I wrote something in that story. I said Carper Jerks. And as soon as I wrote that sentence, I said it's too late to name this book, Carper Jerks. But that line is so awesome 
the next book will be called Carp or Jerks. I will just have to write a story about fishing for carp so that I can call it Carp or Jerks. That's honestly how Carp or Jerks, the second book, came along. I knew what the title was going to be, so I had to fit it in the book somehow. I knew the title. I didn't even have a story for it. I just knew that I had to have a carp story in there. So it's it's kind of a it's a misleading title for the book because a lot of people I think a lot of people ignore it because well I don't want it I'm not a carp fisherman and I don't need to learn anything about fishing for carp you know carp suck who wants to fish for carp but it's carper jerks is one observation in one story of that book uh, you know it's there's there's fishing for everything in carper jerks and it's just more stories but carper jerks was a much more personal book to me because when I finished Reflections of a Fly Rod, I started on Carper Jerks. And then not too long after that, I had a really big life change. My wife told me one night that she wanted to separate and kind of sent me for a, a loop, which ended at the end of that year with a divorce. And during all that, I lost all my steam and motivation. The blog on J.P. Ross Fly Rods at that point stalled out. It pretty much died. I think I had at that point still close to 140 stories on it, but I just couldn't do it anymore. I had nothing in me. I didn't want to write anymore. Uh, I did manage to squeeze out a blog post every now and then, but they were they were pretty depressing stories. I mean, they you said it that I kind of write about, you know, it's, it's kind of, I write about how everything relates to life. It's not just fishing. And that's what was coming out of me. So I wanted, I wanted to get stories up on the blog, but at the same point I didn't because the only thing I could write about was all these emotions in me at the time and how much of a pile I felt like. So I didn't get much up on it. And when I did, they were pretty depressing stories about going out and fishing, but um, hope is that the end of every cast was one of the stories and reflections of a fly rod. And I, I do like to put that in the front of those books when I sign them, but there wasn't a whole lot of hope when I would go out fishing anymore at that point. It was kind of going through the motions. So when I finally came back around, life was never the same again, but I, I wouldn't say that I was getting happy again. I was just kind of trying to find my place in the world again, who I was now. And I decided I was, I needed, I needed to do something. I needed to start writing again. And I got a few more stories up on the blog and I was kind of trying to pick myself up and I decided I need to finish that book. I need to, get back on Carper Jerks. And I fired up my computer and I read the first two stories and it was meant to be, it was meant to be another book full of short stories. And when I started reading the first two stories that I had, I said, you know, they were all right, but they weren't what I wanted to write anymore. I didn't want a book of short stories. It wasn't I don't know if my writing style changed or it was, it might've changed a little bit. Something inside me was different, obviously. And I didn't want to write another book of just short stories anymore. So I started from the beginning 
I rewrote those first two stories and they became stories later in the book and started the book with uh, a brand new chapter one and wrote an entirely different book than what I had planned on writing in the beginning. It became, instead of a bunch of tiny short stories, it became 21 or 22 chapters that are a chunk out of my life. A little before the divorce, through the divorce, and leading up to afterwards, it became a very personal project to me. The first one was just for fun so that I could say I did it, and the second one was actually so that I could say to myself, you can still do it. Um, it was just a very different thing. And it was still, it was, it was still about fishing, but it was, I, I, I don't know. I think that there's maybe even more about life in Carper Jerks than there was in the first book. I don't know. It's like an amazing journey for you to, to go through that. Such a major change in your life and trying to find your voice again, having that come out as kind of like a catharsis, like helping you kind of like, okay, this, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. I mean, it's an amazing personal story, Mark. It's, it's really moving to me. And I think that that's so reflective of the reasons we fish, you know, like if you think about the reasons you love the outdoors and it's just as much, it's like connecting to the outdoors. It's disconnecting from life's troubles you know, there's like this very important part of that, I think, for me personally, and I think for a lot of other people I talk to about just like being able to to find self-expression through all of that, you know, and to be able to find your, your path again, figure out where you are. It's just, it's so awesome. I have not read Carper Jerks yet, but like, I can't wait to read it. Like I, your book, your first book, you're talking about those short stories. It's just like so cool. I want to save some time here to talk a little bit about your experience with like backcountry fishing and and conservation work with trout power if you want to talk about that and why it's important so um i've everybody always asked me what's my favorite fish to fish for i mean that's what you're gonna ask any fisherman and my uh answer is normally well i love smallmouth bass they're probably my favorite fish but push down to the side i will pick going up to the adirondacks and tramping around on small streams for six and seven inch brook trout pretty much any day of the week above a big brawl and smallmouth because of where you have to go to find those fish. Backcountry fishing up north for brook trout on streams where you don't see another person or a trace of people is that is the definition of awesome to me. So I, I grew up with living here in the Adirondacks. I grew up with a lot of backcountry fishing. Um, I don't, I don't know that it was like crazy backcountry fishing, but we were fishing a lot of small streams that most people aren't just going to fish. You know, they're like tributaries, tributaries of the East branch of the Sacandaga river, you know, tributaries of the Scroon. you know, these streams that of the Hudson, you know, these streams where you're catching these beautiful beautiful brook trout you know in their colors and so forth and then we did we also did a lot of pond fishing too but we weren't going too crazy too far off the beaten path you know like when i was a kid we had like a 10 foot john boat we would carry that thing like three four miles <laughs> you know i mean we, we were in places like our pond puffer pond and with canoes and what how did you get exposed to 
your conservation work with those brook trout and talk a little bit about some of the cool stuff that Trout Power is doing, if you're able to talk about that. Yeah, so that was all because of my buddy JP at JP Ross Fly Rods. He texted me one day and my phone went off and I was 265 feet in the air on the top of a cell tower and my phone went off. I was sitting up there waiting for the guys on the ground to get their rigging all set and and send something up to me. So I answered I answered the text and the text said, you know, hey, I want to go explore this brook trout stream up north this weekend. Do you want to go? It could be pretty cool. And I had yet to catch a brook trout on a fly rod. So that was bad enough. But something told me if I said, no, I'm busy, then I was going to really regret it. So I answered him yes. And then I sent a text home and said, I know I've been gone all week, but Saturday, I need to go up north with Jordan. So I was gone all week. I came home. I saw everybody that night. The next morning, I was gone for a day. And what it was, was someone had asked Jordan, would it be worth guiding people on this stream? On this, we'll we'll call this stream, Stream X. Would it be worth it to guide people on this stream? Would you come up? What do you think? And Jordan had taught fly fishing classes in that area in the 90s, in the early 2000s. And while he was teaching there, the water itself was not good. You know, all the acid rain and everything had pretty much devastated it. There wasn't any bug life. There were no, there weren't fish in it to catch. So he said, well, we can go up and take a look. As far as he knew, there really wasn't much in it. But before we actually ended up making the trip, we had actually been hearing rumors about people that had told us, oh, yeah, I fished it, and we caught brook trout. So, Jordan, that didn't make any sense. So, we went on a Saturday. We took a trail down to the bottom of the stream and fished it all the way back up to our vehicles. And what I normally do this stream now, the same trip that we did that day, I will do it in half a day, taking my time, fishing it good. We did it in about three hours. So, we would we would make a cast We'd make a couple of casts to any likely spot, and if you didn't get anything, move on. It was it was really fast-paced fishing. Just can we pull fish out of here or not? And we did really, really well that day. And the question was, was it worth it to have people guide on it? And that became, uh, well, no, probably not, because it'd be more worth it to figure out where these fish came from, because these fish weren't here years ago. Uh, because of all the acid rain. There were tests done on that, on those waters in the late 90s and around 2000, where the pH levels of that stream were like table vinegar. There were no bugs, there were no fish. So now the water's all cleaned up. The acid rain has worked itself out. It's great. There's all kinds of bug life. There's all kinds of fish. And Jordan's like, well, why? Where'd the fish come from? And he hatched this plan after, you know how it is in the whole outdoors community. You end up knowing all kinds of different people that do all kinds of different things for a living. And him owning a fly shop and a fly rod company for a while had all kinds of really cool connections. And he knew a guy who had worked on 
the Adirondack League Club for bringing back the Onondaga brook trout strain that was almost gone, and it's back now. So this guy told JP, this is the person you need to talk to about how to study these fish, what you need to do. And what we ended up doing, Jordan called this guy. He was working at the New York State Museum, and he is a guy that if you give him a little piece of flesh, he can do DNA analysis on it. And his uh, area of specialties was brook trout. So we ended up putting together this plan, which I was oblivious to it. Jordan put the whole plan together with another friend while I fished the thing like every weekend, like there was no tomorrow. I learned the stream really good and was oblivious to what was going on. And the next thing I know, we're up there looking for uh, trails and stuff so that people can go into this stream and get DNA samples and come back out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What are we going to do? And what we ended up doing was, I think the first year we had about 25 volunteers. We stayed at a great camp that was close to the water. We sent everybody out for two days. What you would do is you would catch a brook trout on the stream. You would take a very small fin clipping with a tiny little pair of scissors, and you would drop that into a vial full of ethanol. And then you would sterilize your tools because you're going to get more DNA samples. You didn't want to cross them. And all those DNA samples went to this guy, Spencer Bruce. And I think we had 50 samples. It was either 49 or 51 samples we had. And these fish ended up being, if you compared them to the other heritage strains that they have record of in the Adirondack Park, these fish that used to be there that were then gone and then were back again, ended up being a strain that when you looked at the DNA, just picture a bunch of bar graphs with different colors and stuff, because I'm not a scientist and I can't describe it, but you're looking at graphs that are representing the DNA samples and what's in them. These DNA samples for these fish looked an awful lot like the other heritage strains, but different. They didn't have the uh, stocked strains that they use the Tomiskamy strain, the other hatchery strains, they the DNA samples looked very similar to the other heritage strains, but they were their own. So basically what we found was a, we'll, we'll call it a, a native strain. The DEC is trying to get away from the term heritage. We found a native strain of brook trout that the DEC did not have a record of. In other words, out of all those heritage strains that they listed, they didn't know about this one. Uh, and that was pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. I mean, the significance of that can't be understated to think no. that there's these wild trout out there that the state of New York didn't know about. It's an amazing, amazing story to think that there's fish out there that we just didn't know about. And it also just makes you piques your curiosity about what else don't we know about this stuff? You know, what, what That's else? Exactly yeah. It. Yeah. The first time I'd heard about trout power was at a pint night and uh, Derek Francisco and Paul yeah. Miller were there out in, out in Holland Patton and yep. uh, amazed with the cool work that you're doing there. And it's so neat that, you know, that there's conservation work being done along with all the fun fishing that we can do too. Like that, that just jives with the whole thing. 
So what's um what's next for you? I mean, like, what do you got? What are you looking forward to this year? Are you doing more writing? What are you looking forward to with fishing? And what other things do you want to talk about here? Well, I got I've I've got two more books that are in the works right now. I got to finish one first, and it's actually about the whole trout power thing about that first stream study that led to others. We do a lot of work all over the place now, but it's about that first one. Um, so I'm, I'm having the way I write is pretty personal and it's telling stories, but I'm trying to make this one very factual. So trying to get, trying to tell a story, but make it legitimate. I'm having a tough time with it. So it's not going real fast. It's it's not that it's not going smooth. It's very slow for me. And then I'm doing another book like the first two that, are, you know, are just going to be fishing stories. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to continue with the writing. I, I'm not going to stop with that, but the, the fishing, I took a lot of time off of work in 2019. Some of it was spur of the moment. Hey, <clears throat> I'm not feeling good. I'm not coming in, uh, go fishing. And some of it was planned, but it was all New York state. I'm not really sure what I'm going to be able to pull off, but in 2020, I'd, I'd like to do some stuff that's kind of out of my comfort zone. That's not, you know, I want to do some different stuff. That's great. And and I, I love the fact that you're like working on a book where like stylistically, it's a little different than what you've done before. Like now you're trying to work on the factual kind of stuff. If Hunter S. Thompson were alive, he would give you a license for the gonzo fly fishing writing. So you can, you can put your personality and your stories in there, Mark. So we're looking forward to reading that book. You know, I think the themes here, like, don't be afraid to go out and try something new, right? Even if you make mistakes. And I've said this before on podcasting, my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and I, for the first time, we tried fishing the Hudson River for stripers, okay? And yeah. so none of us knew anything about fishing for stripers, other than the fact that we're supposed to catch herring and then <laughs> fish with the herring. So right. we, we worked up these like Japanese um, bait style rigs. Like we caught a bunch of bait fish that we thought were herring. We fished all day. We didn't catch a single striped bass. And then like when I got home that night, I realized that what we were using for bait was actually white bass and not herring at all. And like they, <laughs> so that is not a forage fish for striped bass. And there was right. no chance at all that we were going to catch stripers on, on white bass because it's just because, but you know what, if we didn't try it, we wouldn't learn. And I think that that's part of the whole fun of it. So there's a personal story. It's kind of funny, but like, so what do you want to wrap up with as far as like, um, leaving the audience. Um, you talked about tips for getting started. You, you know, we covered your books and your writing and your philosophical approach and everything like that. How can people find you? And what's the, what's the closing thoughts for you, Mark? So, all right. So I think I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, I, I got Facebook and Instagram and all that. And if, if you want to buy the books, you can go right on Amazon and you can, put in reflections of a fly rod or carper jerks or my name, Mark Usick, they'll pop up. I want to, I want to say that I, you don't know, you probably do know how many people I run into that say, I always wanted to try fly fishing, but I just haven't, or I tried it once 20 years ago and I just had a hard time with it. And you go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah they tried it once. And that was it. I'm, I'm going to say my word of advice because honestly, it's the only thing that I ever tried that seemed difficult. And I wasn't even sure why I was trying to be getting that I actually stuck with. If you think 
if you like to fish or you like to be outdoors, you don't even have to like to fish. But if you think that you would like to try fly fishing, find somebody that has a fly rod. If you can't, just go and buy one of those mid-grade combos just to get it all out of the way to begin with and go try it. You have absolutely nothing to lose because what you're going to get is off the couch and out of the house and an excuse to call in sick to work. That is down and dirty, plain and simple, why you have to try it. If you think you want to try it, do it. So, Mark Usick, I'm so glad. Thanks for being on the Outdoor Feast podcast with us. We need to do this again. Uh, There's so much more to talk about. We could talk about a lot more about fly fishing and species and, like, your experiences with smallmouth bass versus brook trout and everything like that. We didn't even get into that stuff tonight. Let's keep the conversation going. Thanks for all you do. For folks out there, you know, you want to check out Mark Usick's books, Reflections of a Fly Rod and Carper Jerks. And check him out on J.P. Ross. Go to jprossflyrods.com, and then you click on Lifestyle, you'll see Streamer Junkie come up. Streamer Junkie is the blog. And like I said, there's, I don't know, 140, 150 stories on there easy. Okay. That's awesome. So thanks so much, Mark. Uh, Look forward to doing this again. Very cool. I appreciate it. Me too. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.